that is, that it has splintered into many pieces, and there is very little peace, and we have different groups warring within, well, among themselves, and then we have <coughs> warring going on even within those groups, because we are in the situation which God condemns in the Bible, where every man leans to his own understanding. And when that occurs, and has occurred in the past in Israel, it has led to confusion and to division and to problems. So, God is working on resolving that issue, and you and I have been over in the Scriptures many times how He intends to resolve the problem here in the end time by appointing leadership that He sends and giving them the answers that are needed. However, we have to realize that only 10% of the church, even then, are going to listen to God and to those whom He sends. Now, the problem, really, is that we are not truly close enough to God. And that was what began the problems that the church has suffered here in the end times to begin with. I want to go back to Isaiah 59 <coughs> and understand this once again. It's a scripture you're very familiar with. But it says, Behold, the Eternal's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy, then it cannot hear. So, God has an arm that will reach us. He has ears that will hear us. So, it's not really his problem. It must be on someone else. Verse 2 explains that. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And many scriptures show how he has turned his face from the church here at the end time and will not hear uh, the plea for unity, <clears throat> the plea for growth, all the various prayers that are made for various things. He has basically turned a deaf ear to. And that is why we suffer what we are suffering. But the fault really and truly lies with us, and we are the ones that have to do something about it. He has even told us in many scriptures that when we do something about it, he is going to turn around and begin to bless us again. So we, unfortunately, are the impediment to a closeness to God and the blessings of God. And for those to return, and to return in even greater form and fashion than they have been in the past, we must make a change. The sins must be resolved. Now, he sent his son to die for our sins so that they might be forgiven. And he is a continual offering and a continual sacrifice for us. And he can even mediate with the Father in our behalf because of what he went through uh, due to our sins. So it's not that we don't have help. It's that we have some issues that need to be addressed. And I would like to 
as I said that when I started, I'd like to turn to Isaiah. No, I wouldn't like to. I was going to, and I'm not going to like to do this. I need to do this to look at what may be impeding our progress, to see what we need to do more specifically, and to define the problem a little better for us, that we might make progress quicker toward resolving it. Because we want blessings, and we want God's righteousness. We want peace. And he is going to provide it, as we've already seen, in the latter temple, overseen by Christ himself and the two witnesses and the faithful remnant of the church, those who do respond to him in the way that he desires. Let's see it just a little bit more. Uh, in the previous chapter, he is talking here about us changing our approach and our attitude. Instead of being selfish, the way human beings tend to be, up in verse 6 and 7, he talks about us dealing our bread to the hungry and bringing the poor and helping those who have need. And that if we do these things then our light will spring forth. And they, as verse 12 says, shall be of you, or those that be of you, shall build the old waste places. They shall raise up the foundations of many generations and shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. So if we will do our part, God says that he will use us to heal the breach. The breach being what we just read about in Isaiah 59 that came as a result of our sins and our inattention to God. And once we begin to resolve that, he will begin to use us to heal the breach. So, <clears throat> what a tremendous opportunity and calling God has put before you and me that we can restore the paths to walk in and raise up the waste cities of, Ju of Judah, that being both physical and spiritual, the cities that have been desolate for many generations, as has Jerusalem in a physical way, and also on a spiritual level to restore the foundations of spiritual Jerusalem and Zion and Judah, the church. Those we can be involved in. So what a tremendous and great promise that is if we can but do our part. Now, I want to, or I will, also go to Isaiah 54. I've quoted this one quite a bit several times recently because here he's talking about the restoration of the church here in the end time about how people will start coming, the tent will need to be enlarged, space made for more people. Uh, we do not have room right now uh, where we are for many more people, do we? There's just not much space here when you start talking thousands and thousands of people coming. So in Isaiah 54, it mentions enlarging the tent, making more room, more space for people to dwell. Of course, we know from Zechariah 2 that uh, Jerusalem will be built as villages without walls. 
So it's not all going to be in one place, but about the environs of the true Jerusalem, the people will live. They will begin to gather, I believe, in the first place that God set people, uh, which I believe is right here, but then it will be expanded and will move beyond these Canaan mountains into the area of the true Jerusalem. So God says that that will be done and describes it here in Isaiah 54. And he talks about how his protection will be there in verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. So we do not need to worry about the new world order and what is coming. He says, don't fear it, fear me, there in Isaiah 7 and 8. It makes it very clear that he is to be our fear, and to fear not these things that are coming. And they are coming now like a freight train right at us, at this nation. So it isn't very far away. Don't fear it, fear him. I don't need an assault rifle. I don't have an assault rifle. I will not buy one. I do not intend to assault anyone. I intend to trust God to take care of me if I will obey him and walk humbly and meekly before him and do justly, as he has told us, and to help others as we possibly can. Then he says he will take care of us. The point I want to get to then is the next sentence. This is the heritage of the servants of the Eternal. And their righteousness is of me, says the Eternal. So the righteousness has to be of God. His righteousness through His people. Now let's contrast that in uh, Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But we are all as unclean things... And all our righteousness, or righteousnesses, are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So all that we as a human being try to do is like filthy rags, and we're drying up and blowing away in the wind. There is the difference between the righteousness of mankind and the righteousness of God. Now, it should be apparent to us that based on Isaiah 59, we have not achieved a level of righteousness that God desires. It has to be His, imparted through His Spirit, because we, of ourselves, can do nothing. And the only way we can come to have His brand of righteousness is through His power, through His Spirit. We can't even build a church, he says of Zerubbabel there in Zechariah 4. Not by might, not by power, not by anything a man can do, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal. So everything that is done has got to be done through the Spirit of God. And He does what? He gives His Spirit to them that obey. Acts 5. Let's go to Matthew 22. This is really a very, very simple thing. 
hard to accomplish, but a very, very simple thing. Isaiah 22, and let's begin in verse 36. Well, one came, and verse 36 said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Speaking, obviously, of the Ten Commandments, which, which is the great one? There's ten there. They obviously can't all be the same. Which is the great commandment? And Emmanuel said to him, You shall love the Eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. This one stands above all. Now, he summarizes four there, does he not? But he calls it one. All four of those first four have to do with putting God above everything on earth or in the universe. He is number one in our minds, in our hearts, in our minds, bodies, souls, our beings. He must be put first. Always, always first. In everything that we think, everything that we say, and everything that we do. Our heart, our commitment, our life is devoted to Him. Now that's a wonderful ideal. And that is what we need to be living up to. Simple, isn't it? And he went on to explain. He wasn't asked this one, but he went ahead and explained. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything in the book hangs on, is summarized by and is defined by these two simple statements. You have to love God more than anything. And you have to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. I submit that that is impossible. Simple, but impossible. Without the mind and the spirit of God indwelling in us and the effort that is required to put God first and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Those are impossible to achieve without a very close relationship with God. And we've already seen that we've damaged our relationship with God greatly. And having compromised that, our relationship with each other has also been compromised greatly. And that's why we see so much war and strife and fighting and disagreement and disunion and difficulties within the church. Because we have fallen short of these two commandments. Our relationship with God is not right, and our relationship with our neighbors is not right. 
too often we depend, the, we depend upon God to solve our problems, and too often we depend upon our neighbors to do what we want them to do in order to solve the problems. But it doesn't work that way. God tells us, I don't have the problem, you do. And your neighbor isn't the problem, you are. My neighbor is not my problem, I'm my problem. See what I mean? Until we view ourselves as the problem, we will never resolve it. As long as it's God's problem or our neighbor's problem, it will never be fixed. Can't be reconciled. Can't be fixed at all. So our goal and our purpose is to do two things, quite simply. And everything that is involved in that. And those two simple statements summarize the whole Bible, but the rest of the Bible, and it's a pretty big book, really, the rest of the Bible is just there to explain how better to accomplish those two simple statements that Christ made. That's what the rest of the book is all about. It entails prophecy about what God promises if we will keep those two commandments and that we can live forever eternally in the kingdom of God and never have any more tears or fears or problems or difficulties at all. So he gives us a great deal in here to encourage us in what we need to do. And plenty of instruction in how to go about it and what to do when things go wrong and so on. But it really all goes back to those two things. And I know that's nothing new. We've known that. We've heard that. Our problem is that we have not lived up to it. And therefore, God has hidden his face from us. This must be fixed. Revelation 3 gives us some insight <clears throat> into a situation that we are in. Let's go to verse 14 of Revelation 3. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the embodiment of all good and right, the faithful and true witness. There's no lie here. This is faithful. It is true. The beginner of the creation of God. So Christ himself imparted this message to John, and he reiterates here who he is, and that this is a fact. What we're about to see is the truth of the matter. We don't always like to face the truth, and in fact, most of the church will not face what we're about to read. They blame it on someone else, not on themselves. And how many times have I addressed this in the last 19 years since I began to truly understand what is going on? Anyway, let's read verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now, the church has been spewed. That's a fact. Therefore, 
this verse, or these verses, must apply to the church, we were lukewarm or we would not have been spewed. We have cause and effect. We are dealing with the effect. But we need to grasp the cause in order to rectify the situation and to make reconciliation. Now, in a human relationship, whether it be a marital relationship or a friendship or a business uh, friendship or whatever it might be, it can be quite hot. It can be very intense. It can be uh, something that people have on their minds. They think of their mate, their friend, particularly, and made, I guess, probably fits it better than anything, with great love and concern and compassion and passion and feelings and, and depth. And over a period of time, if we are not careful and do not attend to things properly, transgressions occur, mistakes are made, stupid things are said, hurtful things can happen or be said, and inattention begins to set in, and the relationship begins to cool. And if those transgressions are not fixed, whatever they might be, and they can be of many different kinds of transgressions, if they're not fixed over a period of time, that relationship begins to suffer, does it not? And it gets to the point where it's, uh, oh well. You know, you can only deal with those negative feelings so long until your capacity to do so reaches the end of the nerves. So you begin to build up defenses and walls to protect yourself from the hurt that is felt within that relationship because of what has happened to it. And a defense mechanism that sometimes occurs is not caring. You cannot hurt if you don't care. As long as you care, you can hurt. So your nervous system, your emotions, your mind begins to shut out the hurt until you finally reach the point that you wall it up and don't care. Then you are buffered, you are protected, you're insulated from the hurt. And that's a tragedy that human relationships go there. And our relationship with God works the same way. He loves us with a passion. He loves us with great devotion as his children. But he is hurt by our transgressions. His feelings are hurt. And he finally turns his face away because he is a righteous God. And what he sees occurring hurts him so badly that he cannot, will not, is unwilling to look at it anymore or to hear it and see it. He still hurts. He has not 
allowed himself to come to the point that he does not care. And he makes that clear to us where he says, even in Isaiah 54, where we just were, that his love for us as, as in, as it is as the waters of Noah. They happened. They were inexorable. They were a, an event that occurred. And he says he could not forget us, even as a woman cannot even forget the child that she is in pain to bear or is holding in her arms. So his passion, his love, remains. It is our transgressions that have cooled the relationship and caused it to be broken as it is today. So he talks to us about what we need to do to reconcile, to fix it. And it involves those two great commandments. Loving him above everything else and loving our neighbor as much as ourselves. We're not asked to love anybody human more than ourselves. But as much as is a tall order in itself. So we have a cool relationship. Read on. Because you say. Now he tells us the relationship is lukewarm. Our relationship to him. It is not as hot, not as fervent, not as passionate as he wants it to be. And here is the reason. There's always a because. Because you say... I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We can have an illusion of righteousness in ourselves, about ourselves. And he's saying that it is a great deception. It is only an illusion. We can think that we are true Christians. We can call ourselves the very elect, or we can put some other moniker on us, and we see churches doing that where they are preeminent, or the first and the foremost, or the, the one that's alive while the others are dead, or you know whatever name you want to pick, or the Philadelphia, or the United, or... <laughs> All of those things which none of them are, including ours. If I didn't think we had a problem, I'd go preach to them. But I think we do, so I'll preach to us, to you and to me. I'll just read God's word to us. So he's saying that church which would be spewed. So it had to be referring to this end-time church because it's the one that's been spewed. There's no way, no way of getting out of that, okay? Therefore, the because is on us. Because we are, in a word, self-righteous. We proclaim ourselves righteous. We proclaim ourselves, as a rule in the church today, more righteous than another group, more righteous than our neighbors, 
more righteous than our brothers and sisters in the congregation. That's why we can look down upon them. That's why we can talk about them. That's why we can make trouble or be negative about them. It is because we are self-righteous. We put our righteousness above theirs. It's that simple. We don't talk about ourselves and tell everybody how bad we are, do we? How many times has someone come up to you and said, Boy, I'll tell you what about me. I am the worst that there is. I don't pray regularly. I don't study regularly. I'm full of lusts and deceits and covetousness. And I worship money and materialism. And I don't eat right. And I don't drive right. And I don't put my seat belt on. And, and just run yourself down for 30 minutes or an hour or two about yourself. Now, we use a little self-deprecating humor at times, yes, and we'll admit uh, I have a long way to go to be like God in general terms. But it is very rare that somebody gets specific and runs themselves down and tells you how bad they are. But we'll do it about our brother or our sister, won't we? That means we are self-righteous, and our judgment... We are better than they is why we are in a position to be able to run them down and point out their mistakes or their faults and their problems. That is self-righteousness. God is the judge. Now, if we set ourselves to judge someone's character or their conduct or whatever and to condemn it, then we are putting ourselves in the place of God. And what is that? That is idolatry. Because we're placing our judgment on someone who is God's child, and he has reserved judgment and condemnation to himself. We are not allowed that. Now, can we recognize sin? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But we do not get condemnative of it. Our job, if we see sin, is to pray that that person resolve the sin. It is to encourage them and to help them overcome it, whatever it might be. Now, sometimes we enable by listening to that which is self-righteous... When really, as we saw last week, our job and responsibility is to help that person overcome that. Now, you shouldn't be saying that. That's not a right attitude to have. I don't want to hear that. You shouldn't be saying that. You need to overcome that. You need to grow. You need to say things that are good and uplifting and helpful and encouraging and strengthening. We have a responsibility to help our neighbor if they become uh, self-righteous in their approach to their neighbor, we have a responsibility to help them overcome that by encouraging them to speak those things that Philippians 4, 8, we read last week, 
tell us to do. You can't impassively sit back because your relationship with your neighbor then is lukewarm. You need to be upset when your neighbor begins to cause harm with his tongue. And you need to help set that one straight so that they stop that and work on the self-righteousness that is causing and allowing it to happen. Because you say, I don't need anything, and don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, spiritually speaking. That means it doesn't enter your head. That means you're not conscious or aware of it. So we have to come to see truth in ourselves and get rid of the self-deceit that is there that has caused us to become the way we are. Now, we want to be righteous, don't we? You do, I do. That is our purpose. That is our goal. That's why we're here, is to become righteous. Now, sometimes in working at that and trying to be that, we go about it wrong. And when we go about it wrong, we have trouble reaching what we're striving for. If we use wrong methods, we wind up in a wrong situation. The Pharisees were self-righteous. They bragged about themselves. And they put others down. And Christ called them some very selected names about what they truly were. And they didn't see that at all. So God tells us the same about the church in the end time. And that we too will be blind to the truth of our own self-righteousness and pitiful spiritual condition. Now, obviously, if we are in that pitiful a spiritual condition and got spewed out of God's mouth, became vomit, we are breaking the first and the second great commandment. We are not loving God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and we are not loving our neighbor as much as ourselves. We're deceived about those two things. Let me ask you a question. I doubt if you've ever really considered the correct answer to this and maybe not really worked on it. I don't think I had in quite the way that I intend to present it. But what is your favorite sin? Yours, personally. What is your favorite sin? The one you like the most. Now, human nature is contrary to the law of God. We know that. So, we like to sin. We like to do those things that are contrary to God. Some people have, let's say, a weakness this direction or another direction. And they might have something that they have a particular problem with. It must be something that they like, or they wouldn't have such a problem with it, one way or another. Now, we 
could very easily list a bunch of things that are very common to mankind. And the misuse or abuse of money, it's a root of all evil. Uh, if we love money too much, it can lead to fraud, deceit, thievery. Uh, it can lead to selfishness because we try to gather up as much as we can for ourselves. So money is a common weakness and it's a very, uh, the misuse of money is a very common sin. Uh, alcohol can become a very common sin, misuse and abuse of it. Uh, because people like it, and that's one of their favorite things to do, is drink alcohol. Misuse and abu abuse of food, or sex, or anger, which is murder. It says if you hate your brother, you're a murderer, and you're in risk of condemnation or the judgment. Or others have a predisposition to like power over others to have influence, to have control. And that can be abusive because we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves if we use different ways of exerting power and control over them that are not righteous and are not headed toward righteousness. So, out of those, and maybe I, I, that's just some that came to mind that have to do basically with the last six of the Ten Commandments, uh, you might have another one that I haven't included on the list here that's your favorite. But in that list, you'll probably find something that's one of the most common and perhaps common to you difficulties. And is your favorite sin. <coughs> the one that you do the most. But I'll tell you what, you're wrong. None of those is your favorite sin. Do you know what your favorite sin is? The one that you love the most? The one that is dearest to your heart and soul? The one that you indulge in more than any other? One word. Idolatry. Idolatry is your favorite sin. What is idolatry? It is putting something, including ourselves, ahead of God and ahead of God's ways. It is putting our wants ahead of God's rules. It is putting ourselves first, above God and above our neighbor. Idolatry includes the misuse and abuse of money, alcohol, food, sex, anger, power, and any other categories you want to name. Because it is the misuse and abuse of those things that show that we are putting ourselves and our wants and desires ahead of God and His rules. So idolatry can cover every other transgression. Every other transgression. Because when it's all said and done, when you commit any sin, you have put your desires, your lust, your covetousness, your wants ahead of God. You've put yourself ahead of Him. 
And when we put ourselves ahead of God, then we have set ourselves up as an idol. So it isn't just any old idol, but it is self-worship. The idol of self that is our favorite sin. That's category Roman numeral one. All these others are A, B, C, D, E, F under that one. I'd never really thought of that before in considering this verse. But that's really what God is saying here. We put ourselves ahead of Him. And therefore, because of these sins that we've committed... We have become lukewarm and cool in the relationship, and we do not have the passion for God and for loving Him above everything else. Because once we accomplish that, we will have ceased to sin. No longer, when we love God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, will we sin. Because we will not put ourselves ahead of Him. Any desire, any want, any need that we think we have, we will put Him first. We will revere Him. We will reverence Him. We will fear Him. We will want His love so deeply that we wouldn't do anything for fear of destroying our Minimizing that relationship in some way. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole of man. Last verse of Ecclesiastes. After you go through all the frustrations of human life and human failure that Solomon described in Ecclesiastes, he summed it all up. Fear God. Because God is the answer to our deepest longings, as Philippians says. He can give us life eternal and peace and security forevermore. So we put Him first and we fear to break His law. Now let's say some of your A, B, C, D sins below idolatry. You commit, you allow your mind to think, whatever... You allow hatred or bitterness or resentment or animosity toward others, which are breaking the second of the great commandments. You allow your mind to turn on those things or to go there or to dwell there. That means you do not fear God and His retribution enough. It means you do not love him with all your heart, or you would treat your neighbor as yourself and not allow the feelings that we have within relationships as humans to be as they are. We would fear not being a part of the kingdom of God. But if you have allowed your mind to follow a certain rut for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, whatever, to go places that a human mind should not go or should not allow itself to go or not allow Satan to drag it to, if you have worn a rut for years 
in a certain wrong way of thinking, it's easy to go there, isn't it? It's just so easy to go there. And to forget fear of God and be in that place that your mind and your emotions should not be. Therefore, it reflects that your relationship with God is not on fire and passionate as it should be. Because it's so easy to slip into a wrong way of thinking, which is sin. Just so easy to go there. And sometimes our mind can slip in places it doesn't belong and we're hardly even aware of it. They've been going there for so long and some of those attitudes are so deep that we can find ourselves there and not even realize where we were headed or even that we have arrived there until we have allowed our minds to turn on that which is wrong for minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, whatever. Something has to be done to get rid of that level of righteousness that we have allowed ourselves to descend to, which is self-righteousness. We have to break out of those ruts. We have to actually make changes. That's why he says to all seven churches, to him that overcomes. Overcoming is necessary to be a part of the kingdom of God and to receive the blessings that he names in Revelation 2 and 3. How do we recognize self-righteousness? It's so hard to do. Because we have convinced ourselves that our way of thinking must be okay because it's our way of thinking. I wouldn't come up with a wrong conclusion. I wouldn't be wrong in my relationships. I wouldn't be wrong in what I say or believe. Would I? Well, we all were. We were headed some way other direction before God began to call us and teach us some of his truth, weren't we? And we had to change on a lot of issues. And now we find that even though we physically began to keep the Sabbath and the holy days and to give up unclean meats and various things, that now we have a great deal of spiritual uncleanness based on idolatry, because we have accepted ourselves as we are, and we allow our minds to go those places that they go that they do not belong, and to have attitudes that should not be there that ought to be changed. We need to have some very, very deep introspection of ourselves and strip away the deception. And look at ourselves honestly and truly, brethren, for what we really are. Now, what's your attitude about that? What's your attitude about that? What's your attitude about him or her? Is it a godly attitude? Is your attitude toward food or sex or money God's attitude toward those things? Or is it your own attitude? And one that you have, one way or another, accepted 
and are doing nothing about. It's unrighteous. It's unholy. It's ungodly and it's idolatrous. But we come to have a comfort level with our bad attitudes, such as they are. And once we adopt that comfort level, we're not going to do anything about them. They'll just be there year after year after year. So God is saying in Ephesians 5, verse 16, that we are to be redeeming the time. The time is short and the days are evil. And we have to do something about these things. But you, you have to be brutally honest. Do I impute motives to others? Do I blame others? Do I have attitudes toward others? Do I say things negatively about others? Now, you wouldn't dare say those things about God, would you? Because He is the ultimate source of righteousness and good. And we know He holds the keys to life and death and judgment. So we're pretty careful about saying things bad about God or imputing evil motives to God. But human beings, hey, they're fair game in our minds. But he says they're made in the image of God and they're his children and he's very jealous of his children. And he tells us that the way we treat one another is how he's going to treat us. Now that just ought to scare us to death. God is going to treat me and judge me just like I do my neighbors and friends and brothers and sisters. That puts it in a whole other framework. All right. The favorite sin is idolatry. That's the one we indulge in the most. has to do with all the others. What's the commonest sin on earth? The very commonest sin. Same one. It's idolatry. We commit idolatry more frequently than any other sin there is. Putting our emotions, our feelings, our desires, our wants ahead of God and His rules. His way of thinking. We allow a certain amount of evil. We allow a certain amount of negativity. And he tells us we're not to be that way. We're not to have those attitudes. We are to change them and to think as he thinks. But we think as we think. Let's go to Colossians 3. And I'll prove to you that what I'm saying is correct. You probably never realized your greatest sin and your commonest sin was idolatry. You might have thought of another one as your commonest or most severe difficulty or sin. But it's really that one. Colossians 3. Let's begin in verse 1. We'll go down to a verse that is very important in this, but he, he tells us a whole lot here. If you then, being risen with Christ... Now, we're not in the first resurrection yet, but we're risen from the water, from baptism, from death. 
of human thinking to a new man with godly thinking. We're risen with Christ. He rose from the very dead in the grave. We rose from the water, which is a symbolic grave. That being the case, then, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. God rules the universe. Set your mind, your heart, your emotions, your feelings on Him. It's the money, the sex, the power, the food, the alcohol, these other things that we set our affections upon, whatever they may be, and there are lots of them, of the works of the flesh. We so easily set our minds there because we're human, and that's the way humans tend to think. We used to be just like the world out there. Now we are risen with Christ, and we need to think differently and put our affection on things above, on God. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Crucify the flesh. Crucify yourself daily, as Paul said he did. We have to get rid of our way of thinking, our way of acting, our focus on things below. And that's what makes us self-righteous and idolatrous, is our affection on things here. And what we want, want is akin to covetousness, those things that we desire for ourselves that are ungodly if misused or abused or in some cases ungodly, period. I didn't mention tobacco. Now there's one that probably is not good in any. It's not a matter of abuse. It's a matter of use, period. Or drugs that will harm our bodies of any kind. That's another one that is a very common sin, is drug use or tobacco use. When you know it's going to blow your mind, eventually, it'll wreck your throat and your lungs and give you cancer and you'll die from some of those things, eventually. But hey, I want it. I need it. I have to have it. And so, we go there. Mortify. Well, let's, let's, I skipped a verse. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Remind ourselves constantly what our goal and our purpose is. Mortify or kill. Mortify and mortician are very closely associated. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, wrong affection, evil, lawless desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All those things are idolatry. Covetousness is the tenth commandment but it is tied inexorably to the first commandment. Coveting and desiring anything that is bad for us spiritually or physically is covetousness. It is an inordinate desire 
inordinate means unlawful or outside the ordinances of God, and therefore becomes idolatry. Paul puts it in so many words. Desiring the things that you want that are not right or good for you or good for others is idolatry. Therefore, all other sins are listed under idolatry, and that's why worshiping God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul is the first commandment. It's the most important commandment. And everything else is a branch off of it, and it causes idolatry if followed. For which thing's sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. Disobeying God in any form, then, is idolatry. In the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. But now you also put off all these. You get rid of these. If you've got a rut in your mind that has allowed you to go to some of these places he's about to name, he says you have to get rid of it. You have to mortify or kill inordinate wrong desires. Put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, dirty communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. We cannot have any of these attitudes just named here. We can think our anger is justified. Maybe it is. Maybe there was truly an offense. But you cannot retain anger, wrath, malice in your mind, in your emotions. It is not allowable. I think we'll see that before we reach the end of this part of this passage I'm going to read. Lie not one to another, seeing you put off the old man with his deeds... And I put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We begin to think and act like God instead of like ourselves. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. All of us here who've received the Holy Spirit of God have that. And we have been conceived of God to be born into his kingdom. And we need to treat each other as potential gods, not as human scum, in our opinion. That is not allowed. Not allowed. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels from the deepest of your innermost being, mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. He says, you get rid of all these others, the malice, the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the hate. That all has to go away. Can't have any of that. That isn't the way God is. Here's what you are to replace those feelings with. Mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, making place for 
compassion and mercy upon one another. Forgiving one another, not holding grudges or attitudes or resentment or bitterness over some wrong done to you. You want to be forgiven by others when you transgress. We want to so badly we don't even want to admit when we've transgressed. We want that hidden. We want it gone. We want it forgotten. If it's our mistake, if it's somebody else's, we want the whole wide world to know. That's unrighteous. That's self-righteous. And that, too, is idolatry. Because that isn't the way God thinks. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. If you've had a quarrel, if you've had a fight, you are to put it behind you. You are not to remember it, to dwell on it, to spread it, or any such thing but to forgive it. Even as Christ forgave you, also do you. Christ forgave you and me of every wretched, abominable sin we have ever committed. And we are to do that with our brothers and sisters. The same level that Christ did it for us. Now, if we don't do that and we choose to allow ourselves to retain those things in our minds and emotions, then we are self-righteous. Then we are idolatrous. Because Christ forgives all, and God the Father forgives all. And if we retain, that means we're putting our mind and our attitude and our judgment above His. That is idolatry. That is self-righteousness, not the righteousness of God. Now, I'm dwelling on this so that we might better comprehend ourselves. So that we might better analyze ourselves. Because God's already told us we have this problem. Therefore, we have to analyze it and discuss it with ourselves and see how it applies to me. How am I self-righteous? How am I idolatrous? What form does it take? Well, if you have any of these attitudes of man that Paul has just listed, and you don't have the attitudes of God that he lists further down toward any individual or God himself, then the shoe fits. Don't wear it. Throw it away. It's an old shoe that has become too comfortable and too easy to walk in. Get rid of it. You need new shoes of righteousness, walking in the paths of righteousness. And above all these things, verse 14, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The deep, abiding love of God for each other. Because you cannot, as James told us last week, have bitter and sweet coming out of your mouth. You cannot praise 
and say you love God with all your heart while you talk ill of your neighbor. He says this should not be. Remember that? We read it just last week. Out of the same mouth cannot come salt and sweet. The salt will infringe upon the sweet to some degree, depending on how much of it there is. But any salt will impede the sweetness of water. Can't have both coming out of the same. So whatever we have allowed to reside in our hearts and minds and come out our mouths has to be the love of God, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Peace means forgiveness. Peace means no rancor, no anger, no bitterness, no wrath, no resentment, no hate. Peace can only be when there is peace. <laughs> if those negative emotions are there, it is not peaceful. You know, you destroy and disturb your own peace more than you disturb your neighbor's peace. Do we grasp that? If you have anger, bitterness, resentment, wrath, hatred, distrust, maliciousness of any kind, it affects your mind and emotions more than anyone else's because it's what's going on in your head. And you say some of it, you vent, you blow off steam, whatever to somebody, and that is only a small part of what's really in there that's disturbing the peace in your mind. And you have to let go of it in order to have any kind of emotional peace within your own head. It isn't your neighbor who did this, 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 or that that destroys your peace. It's your continuing hanging on to whatever it is they did that destroys the peace in your own head. I have been accused of many, many things in my life, and I've done many, many things in my life. And I've hated myself for them. And I have gone to God and asked Him to forgive me for many, many years now. Virtually daily. I don't think a day goes by that I don't ask for forgiveness and mercy. Because I know I fall so short of the mark of the high calling of Christ. But there are people from 30, 40, 50, 60 years, I don't know how far it goes back, that I did something to, or they thought I did, that they hate me with a passion to this day about. You know what? Doesn't bother me. I don't think about it. I don't go back and try to remember everything bad I ever did to anybody. Now, there are some things I regret and once in a while will come across my mind and I'll wish I hadn't said or done that. And it might be something that... Something happens that reminds me of it. I don't go back there and beat myself daily about something I did 30 or 40 years ago. It wouldn't accomplish anything. 
We're even told to forget the past and move forward for the high calling that we have. So beating ourselves up about the past does us no good and does no one else any good. So if I have asked God to forgive me, I try to forget what I did and what I did to somebody that may have hurt them and move on and not do that anymore. But if that person that I hurt decades ago still remembers that and will not turn it loose and their heart is still full of hate toward me, they're not disturbing my peace. I don't know they're thinking that. I don't know they haven't forgotten that. I don't know anything about them anymore. I may not have seen them in 40 or 50 years. Might not have even thought of them in 40 or 50 years. Or 30 or 20 or 10. Whatever. But if they have retained it in their heart and mind, and that bitterness is still there, they're not hurting me anymore. They're hurting themselves. See how we're our own worst enemy? And if we will not love people in the bond of perfectness, it will hurt us. Now, I've had people who've hurt me 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago pretty badly. Done some terrible things to me. That's true. Fact. I had somebody that cheated me out of several million dollars. Literally. Money that was in the bank and in the equipment. Boy, did I have a fight for a while, brother, and I'll admit it to you. I laid on my bed and thought of the various ways that I might be able to kill that individual and get away with it. And I thought if he'd just come over the right mountain at the right time on an elk hunt or a deer hunt or something. Because somebody had expressed that. If so-and-so ever comes over that hill and I'm hunting, and I thought, yeah, yeah I kind of like that. So I thought that of this individual. Now, I've not heard from him or seen him in probably 25, 30 years, 40, whatever it's been. And you know, I had to get over that. I had to get over that. Somebody said to me, hey, Daryl, it's just money. I know, but it was my money. It was my money. And it's gone. And I was mad. I had truly been wronged. And I had every right to have righteous anger. That's true. God can get angry. He's slow to wrath. He can get angry. And then he gets over it. And you know, that's what I had to do. It took me a while. It really did. It was a struggle. But I finally got over it to the point I could say it was just money. And I had to come to the point that I had forgiven the transgression and prayed for that person to be part of the kingdom of God from my heart. I had to do that. I had to come to that point. Now that's just one example of a battle that I had to fight and had to win. Now as I speak of that, I feel no rancor, I feel no bitterness, I feel no resentment. 
I did then. But I had to turn it loose and leave it in the past and not worry about it anymore. Because, you know, all those things that I was lying there on my bed tossing and turning about and so angry about didn't affect him at all. He didn't even know I was thinking it. And if he had, he probably wouldn't have cared. So I was torturing myself, not him. The hate and the bitterness and the resentment was affecting me, not him. That's the way it is with us. We disturb our own peace. So God says, hey, somebody did something to you, forgive them, love them, don't worry about it. That's where we are to be. To get rid of all these negative attitudes that Paul mentioned, and then to have the good ones that he did mention as well. That's the goal. That's the purpose. And any of these things that come short of the way God thinks is idolatry. Again, times it getting to be. But we have a breach between us and God because of our sins and our lackadaisical attitude and our willingness to let our minds and emotions follow the ruts that they have always followed and whatever covetousnesses and desires that are ungodly that we have had that we allow to continue. Anger, bitterness, resentment, distrust. Herbert Armstrong is in his grave. His judgment is complete. But there are people to this day that, boy, you bring his name up and they're just full of venom and bitterness and anger and hate. Whose peace are they disturbing, brethren? His? He's resting in peace. They're disturbing their own peace with the thoughts that they allow their heads to go to. We have to go to God and fix it. We have to repair the breach and the idolatry that we have allowed. It is our favorite sin, it is our commonest sin, and it is the biggest sin in the church today. Self-righteousness and idolatry, which basically are one and the same. Self-worship, self-righteousness. My way of thinking, my way of doing, I put ahead of God. We've got to mortify that. We must come to the point that we love God more than ourselves and love our neighbor as much as ourselves. Those are the first and the second commandment. And really that's all there are. If we're to have the righteousness of God and peace, we have to get rid of our own brand of righteousness and our idolatry so that peace has a chance to reside in our minds and the minds of our brethren.